Amen. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Um, this morning we're going to be picking back up in Mark. If you're new here, it's the first time here, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. But last week we took ourselves a little break. Had ourselves a little pool party, right? Yeah, it was awesome. Uh, we had a baptism service last week, and three of the guys here, uh, Kyle, Abel, and Josh, got baptized. And, and man, it was a great time. Um, we centered the service around it. You know, everybody went out in the pool there, not actually in the pool. You know, you didn't have to bring your trunks and stuff. But we were out there around the pool. The guys, we got in the water. They shared their testimonies of what God has been doing in their life, how they, their understanding of the gospel, how that's led to their conversion. And uh, we got to pray for them and stuff. It's just an amazing time. It's an amazing opportunity. It's time of celebration. So it literally was a pool party. And, um, you know, it, it it was good for all those reasons, man. I mean, just to hear their testimonies, to see them identify themselves with Christ through baptism. But even more so, I mean, you had the chance to check us all out in our swimming trunks, right? You know? I mean, it may have come to a surprise to some of you because, I mean, we, we split up the sermon into two halves, right? We were talking about why we baptize, then we had the baptism, we came back in, we did why we do the Lord's Supper, and then all that. But, but Jim preached the first half of his message in his swimming trunks, you know? I mean, it's probably more than you bargained for. But just know that, that we actually spared you quite a bit because once Jim saw the hot tub, that's all he wanted. You know, he wanted to go to the hot tub. And it was everything we could do to keep him out so that he wasn't actually preaching to you with a wet T-shirt on. So consider yourselves lucky. But uh, today we're back in Mark, and we're picking up in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. Originally, I was going to add this to verses 9 through 13. Uh, I was going to talk about it there in conjunction, showing how Christ was doing that which he is calling us to do in his preaching. But there's so much stuff in here, I felt like I would be uh, doing you a disservice to just pass over it. Um, and I say that, but if you look at the passage, you'll notice that it's like, man, this is commonplace. I mean, we've heard, if you've been in church at all growing up, you've heard about the kingdom of God. You've heard about the need to repent. And you've heard about the, the need to believe in the gospel, right? And so we can read over this passage, just kind of just gloss right over it. These, these words are so familiar that we think we understand them and then we kind of move on. But I just want to caution you against that. I mean, though these words are commonplace, though they are familiar, though we've heard them many, many times before, we often misunderstand these three terms. The kingdom of God, repent and believe. And missing these terms means everything. If you miss any one of these, you miss the gospel. If you miss any one of these, you miss the kingdom of God, right? The true kingdom of God. Missing these terms, misunderstanding these terms, misdefining these terms has cataclysmic consequences for your eternity. It's the difference between eternal life and everlasting death. And so we need to pay attention to them. So basically, this is what we're going to look at today. What Jesus is preaching. He's preaching the kingdom of God. He's preaching repentance, and he's preaching faith. So uh, with that, let's look at the passage real quick. It's page 836 in the Bibles that's there in front of you, 836. And again, it's Mark 1, 14 through 15. It says, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Before we go any further, let's 
Let's pray. Our Father who who art in heaven, we pray that your kingdom would come and that your will would be done on this earth as it is in heaven. God, we pray for that, but we pray for clarity and understanding in that. That you have sent your Son, your, your anointed King, to proclaim his coming. And that if we are to have this in our hearts, we must repent and believe. God, I pray that, that we won't be distracted, that we won't just kind of gloss over this because we think we've heard it before, that, but you would open our eyes and our ears, our hearts and our minds, so that we might see, so that we might truly understand, so that we might be willing to follow after Christ, our King. And God, we need your Holy Spirit to do this. So we ask, Spirit, work in our lives as we look at this text today. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. First, we see that Jesus comes preaching the kingdom of God. Now, I want to give just a brief context where we were. In verse 9, Jesus shows up on the scene, right? He shows up out in the wilderness, out at the Jordan River, where John the Baptist is there. And John is preaching the forgiveness of, you know, preaching the need for repentance and hope in this coming one. And that people were to identify themselves with that hope by being baptized. Jesus shows up there and he acts in obedience to the call and command of God. Even though he committed no sin, he had no need to repent of anything, he was willing to be obedient. In his humanity, he showed his obedience to the will of his Father. And God did something cataclysmic then. It said that as he came up out of the water, that God tore open the heavens and that the Spirit descended on him as a dove. This is a divine anointing, and it signifies this dramatic change in all of history. A new age has dawned. God's King has come. So this is a divine, a miraculous, a significant event that has just taken place. Then Jesus, led by the Spirit, goes out into the wilderness in His humanity to be tempted for 40 days by Satan himself, identifying himself completely with us. And in that event, He gained cosmic victory over Satan himself. So what we see is this cataclysmic collision of the humanity and divinity of Christ. And now enter verse 4. Somewhere, during some, sometime while Jesus was out there that 40 days, John gets arrested. He, for whatever reason, well, we know the reason. But, but John's arrested before Jesus returns. And we know from Mark 6 that John had been preaching that it wasn't lawful for Herod, the Tetrarch, that's a really fancy word for saying, yeah, he's kind of sort of the king of the Jews, but he's under every Roman governing authority there is. He's a vassal. He, you know, It's just kind of a title. He's really a servant of the emperor of Rome, and so that's his position. But he told Herod, hey man, it's not lawful for you to be married to your brother's wife. They're still married in the eyes of God. You're committing a sin. You know, and so like all men with positions of authority, when they're told the truth, you know, their their sin is made open. You know, they use their power and they go and they arrest him. Right? I mean, that's that's just what he did. And though the word arrest accurately describes what happened in a historical way, I mean, John was clearly arrested and eventually beheaded because of his preaching truth. 
semantically, this is not a very accurate word. The, the Greek word is actually says handed over. And John was handed over. Just like Jesus was handed over in his betrayal and arrest. He was delivered up. He was given over. Here John, and we looked at from verses 2 through 8, this is, this is God's promised messenger. The one who would come and declare the way of the Lord. He would prepare the people to receive this coming one by preaching and by baptizing. I mean, God had spoken of John 500 years earlier. And here it's coming, ready to be fulfilled. This is, this is a good thing. He's doing what God wants him to do, and he's handed over. Just like the Son of God. Just like Jesus. <laughs> Jesus actually said uh, of John, that truly I say to you, no one born of a woman, uh, truly I say to you, among those born of, of women, there has arisen no greater than John the Baptist. He said the greatest person ever born from a woman was John the Baptist. It doesn't get better. But yet this man was handed over for doing what God wants him to do. And this doesn't make sense to us. We think that if, if we're going to be obedient, we're going to do what we're supposed to, then blessings ought to come, right? The, the kingdom ought to come in some really significant and powerful ways. But God's ways are not our ways, and God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And if anyone tells you that faithfully serving God will result in sunshine and roses, in health and wealth and prosperity, they're liars. I mean, this is spawn of Satan kind of junk right here. I mean, that's just not true. God has different purposes in mind in faithful obedience. Because if no, no one born of a woman is greater than John, and he, just like Jesus, was handed over, then the kingdom of God is not a matter of peace and comfort and prosperity on this earth. And guys, I want you to get that. Because that's an eternal, de internal desire within each of us. To just live a comfortable, quiet, complacent life where we get what we want and we can do fun things and then it's over and we want to go be with Jesus. But, but the kingdom of God is more than that. So if you're, if you're kind of thinking to yourself, man, I really don't want to be handed over, and I just caution you, the kingdom of God is more than that. But we'll hang in there. We'll see that it's worth it. Um, it's interesting to see that it's when John is actually handed over that Jesus begins his ministry. That there was a fulfillment that happened in John's ministry and in John's being handed over that marked the beginning of the coming of Christ. There's, a, there's a, a discontinuity here. And Jesus comes, and what's he doing? He's proclaiming the gospel of God. He comes preaching the good news of God. This is the good news from God. It's the good news about God. So God sends Jesus to tell others about himself. Right? This is God's message of himself to us. About him. And Jesus is faithful to it. And, and actually you can sum up all of Jesus' messages ever in verse 15. I mean this is, Mark presents it as the summation for the whole. And he says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is God's message to us. This right here. If you catch nothing else from the gospel of Mark, catch this. 
This is the entirety of Jesus' message to us. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. He said the culmination of redemptive history is here. The time of hoping and longing and waiting is over. God's kingdom is near. All that God had promised in the Old Testament, all that He had declared from Adam and Eve all the way up to Joseph and Mary has now arrived. All God's Old Testament promises are here. They find their end. They find their hope. All that waiting for has now come to fruition. The time is here. The time is fulfilled. The time is at hand. A new age has dawned because Jesus has entered the world. This is what was so significant about verses 10 and 11 when God rips open the heavens. It marks a new day, a new time, a beginning, a new beginning. And so handing over God's promised messenger, John, marked the end of the former age and the entrance of Jesus' ministry, the beginning of a new one. All right? I want you to catch that. That has, that's significant. If you're, if you're in our community group, we're talking about redemptive history. And we talked about how the Old Testament and the New Testament fit together. And the Old Testament's all about promises. The New Testament's all about f- fulfillment. And here we see it. This is where it comes together. If there's one point in the Bible where it comes together, it's right here. And John's arrest and being handed over, and Jesus' interest into his ministry. And so in this one sermon, Jesus gives us the summation of his message for the Gospel of Mark. He didn't come as a moral example. He didn't come as a healer. He didn't come as a miracle worker. He didn't come as a teacher of societal ideals. He came as a preacher, proclaiming the Gospel of God. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And you have to respond to it. And so we get this. The new age has dawned. But what does Jesus really mean when he says the kingdom of God? I mean, there's all sorts of of misunderstandings. What does that mean, the kingdom of God? I mean, often when we think about kingdoms, we think about geography lessons, right? We think about territories and boundaries and realms. And so we think, okay... You know, the Roman Empire, it had a boundary. God's, God's kingdom must have a boundary. And we pray things like, God, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we think, okay, God is ruling up there, and the kingdom of God is about you know, coming down here and eventually spreading his kingdom, building his kingdom, expanding his kingdom. Like we're adding walls and we're extending things out. And, and we even do that in church where it's like building the kingdom somehow equals building church buildings. I don't know. But we, we kind of we have this misunderstanding that that's what it's about. And somehow we foolishly think that we're participating in it. Like God needs us to build his kingdom. And that's just a joke. That's some bad language. We don't build God's kingdom. We don't expand upon God's kingdom. It's not physical, folks. Israel thought it was physical. They're clearly wrong. The Crusaders thought it was physical. They were wrong. Even the Nazis thought it was physical. And they were wrong. It's spiritual. So I just want to ask you a couple of things to think about. You know, if, you, if you're still struggling with this idea of what the kingdom is, who spoke the world into being? God did. 
And if and who is called the Lord Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth in Scripture? The possessor, the one who owns it. God is. And if he made it, made it and he owns it, then who is king over the earth? God is. Right? And has he not been actively demonstrating his power over the heavens and the earth? Sustaining life, continuing to move and act? I mean, what was parting of the Red Sea all about? Really? You know, he's displaying, he's active, he's involved, he's showing that he rules. Daniel says in Daniel chapter 5, verse 21, that God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he wills. And so even there, the kingdoms of this earth that are established, that do have physical and geographic boundaries, God has the authority over those. He sets those up. He tears those down. What we see is God is providentially governing all things. And if you add to this fact, this fact that God is sovereign and ruling, that he is also omnipresent, that he's everywhere all the time, and that he's all-powerful, that he can do all his holy will, what exactly is left for us to do to build and expand God's kingdom? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So the language is, is completely off. The kingdom of God is not a physical realm to be fought for or to be built, but it is a spiritual reign in the hearts and lives of those who God calls to himself. That's what it's about. God's kingdom is a matter of Christ being king in the hearts of people. God's kingdom is not built, then. It's realized. If we're going to talk about God's kingdom, we need to talk about it being realized. It's not centered on a geographical boundary, but on the recognition of its king. Jesus proclaims that the kingdom of God is at hand because the king is near. He actually uses a locative term. When he says the kingdom of God is at hand, he means it's, it's near us. It's very present near us, like I'm near Phyllis or I'm near Keith. It's near, but only because the king is there. In, uh, at risk of sounding like Al Sharpton, the kingdom is near because Jesus is here. <laughs> to inherit the kingdom is to gain Christ. Not to live in luxury or privilege. It's to take yourself off of the throne of your hearts and to allow Christ to take his rightful place there. We need to stop living as if I, this is my world and I am God. And we can do this even in ministry, folks. Trying to be king and dictate and control and expand and build God's kingdom. But it starts with our own hearts and taking ourselves off of the throne of our own hearts and giving Christ his place there. So when we pray your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we're praying that it would be done in people's hearts. That God's will would be the will of his people. Those who believe and those who do not yet know that Christ is king. We're praying that this would be realized. That people would know Jesus is Lord and Savior. That he is king. And it starts with us desiring that for ourselves and allowing Him to be Lord of our lives. And then as a result of that, we go out and we share with others. The amazing thing is, the King, who is saying the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel, who is proclaiming the gospel of God, who is proclaiming Himself, 
is doing the very thing that he's calling us to do. Do you notice that? He's calling us to do what he's doing. To proclaim the gospel of God. So Jesus, in effect, is preaching about himself. The kingdom of God is at hand because Jesus, God's king, is here. And so this message requires something from us. We can't just hear it and be like, oh, that's nice. kingdom of God is here. Yay, I'm happy. It, it, it has an inference. We have to do something as a result of that, which leads to the second two parts of Jesus' message. He preaches not only about the kingdom of God, but he preaches second about repentance. And here we see the continuity and affirmation of John's ministry. Right? Though there is this discontinuity between John's being handed over, the old, the former days are ended and a new age has come, we see this continuity and it's in preaching repentance and faith. And we start to see that there's a thread that's meant to go throughout scripture of what, what God's message is really all about. And the kingdom is far more than just a, a geographical boundary of being a nation that are citizens, where we're citizens of, of the kingdom of God, it's really about God's people being in God's place under His rule and blessing. That that's really what it's about. And Jesus says, Since the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Therefore, all who hear this should repent. Should repent. You don't enter into the kingdom of God just because you want to. Or just because you say so. Just because you happen to be raised in a family that is a part of the kingdom of God. This is all stuff that Israel thought. Hey, I'm a citizen of Israel. God's chosen. God's people. So I must be a part of God's kingdom. Well, no, he's shattering that all right here. It's not enough for you to just grow up in church. It's not enough for you to just hang out with Christians all the time. It's not enough for you to just attend services on Sunday. There's got to be something more that happens there. You know, we can't, we don't become a kingdom, a part of the kingdom of God because we build, make a fake ID and we sit, you know, in that geographic location as if it's there. Something has to happen in our hearts that goes far deeper than what we do. All right? And it defines who we are. You must recognize that you have rebelled against God. This is the first step of repentance. That the perfect, holy creator made everything perfect, but yet you have sinned against it. You've rejected him in thought, in word, in deed. You've tried to live life without him. you tried to live as if this is your world and your God with no recognition of Him, no response, no no acknowledgement of Him, trying to do my own thing. I mean, does this sound familiar? I mean, even, even as I think about the kingdom of God, and what I want to be a part of it, but I still want to do my own thing. Or I want to use Christ to my own ends, so that I can get out of jail, you know, get out of hell, so that I can, you know, have some good stuff in eternity, be with my friends and my family, and all that kind of stuff, you know, focusing on the gifts rather than the giver. And we can do that even in that. We've got to love Christ. And to love Christ, we must first hate our sin. We have to recognize that we have tried to live without Him. And that, as a result of that, that we are worthy of His condemnation. And that's another thing, too. We don't often want to admit that. 
It's fine in the abstract, but when you think about, man, I'm, I'm justly under the eternal wrath of God. That's kind of scary, right? But repentance is being more, is more than being sorry for your sin. Like being sorry in the, I'm sorry for the guilt that I experience. I'm sorry for the, the consequences of my sin. That uh, it, it makes me have to do this. I have to go back and reconcile. I have to, if I murder somebody, I have to spend time in jail. You know, things like that. But it's actually hating your sin. So repentance is turning from sin and surrendering to the God-given right of Jesus to be king of your heart. Don't miss this, guys. This is huge. This is huge. When we sin, we put ourselves first. When we repent, we put Christ first. That, and so we can feign repentance while all the while putting ourselves first. And you've got to recognize the distinction there. We've got to put Christ first. That means before my ambition. That means before my popularity. It means before my family. Before my job. Before absolutely everything. I'm willing to put Christ first. So repentance then is is more than simply changing one's mind. It means revising one's judgments and, and developing a plan of action. So often we treat, we treat repentance like we're driving down Highway 74 West towards Bloomington, and we make a decision, I, I've changed my mind. I'm not going to go to Bloomington anymore. I'm going to go to Peoria, right? That's kind of how we treat repentance. But repentance in reality is like, you know what? I'm on the wrong road here, or at least I'm heading in the wrong direction. I can't be headed towards Bloomington. I need to be headed towards Indianapolis. So I've got to turn the car around and go the other way. Sin, it, by its very nature, looks to put ourselves first. It looks first to self. Repentant Christians look first to Christ. Okay? So, again, don't assume on this. There are tons of hindrances to our repentance. We need to look at a few of them. First, the hindrance to true repentance is a feeling of condemnation. Right? We kind of start to wince when somebody starts talking about sin and the need to repent. We don't like it. Because we feel con- condemned. We feel like you're, you're mad at us, that you're judging us. Why, why are you judging us? And so we, we start to just kind of ball up. And, but, but we have to realize that Jesus himself came and he's preaching this. He said, listen, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. You want the kingdom? Then by implication, you need to repent. And Jesus is not saying that to browbeat you, to make you feel like dirt bags. Okay? That's not his goal. Jesus is preaching so that you might have the opportunity to switch allegiances. That you might stop living for yourself and living for Christ. There's hope in repentance. Because this change can actually happen. It's given through, it's proclaimed by, and, it's, it, and the result is affected by Christ. This is a hope-filled message, not one of condemnation. So as I'm up here and I'm preaching, I'm talking about repentance and faith, and, and, and your sin and how you need to put Christ first in your life. You just need to know I ain't mad at you. I ain't angry. You know, I'm not condemning you. I'm considering myself as part of this. This is just as much a message to me as it is to all of you. We need to repent of our sin and put Christ first in our lives. This is an opportunity. It's a call to change allegiances. The second hindrance is pride. We just don't think we sin, you know? We just, yeah, I don't sin. 
whatever, I'm, I'm perfect, I'm, I'm good. Or, you know, we're, we're kind of engaged in an argument, right? You know, and we're kind of going back and forth. Somebody's identified our sins, you know, like, like you know what, Rachel, you've sinned in this way. And you're like, no, I don't sin, you sin. I'm going to tell you, Brett, you sin. You're the sinner. I'm not the sinner, you're the sinner. You know, and we kind of turn that around. Or we begin to play the victim, right? Oh, no, 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 I didn't sin. This is just all these factors that were imposed upon me that make me act this way. Well, no, they don't. They, I mean, they influence you for sure. But they don't make you sin. You sin, right? And so don't, we, we can't put that off. If we don't recognize our sin for what it is and for what it deserves, we will not repent. We just won't do it. And our entering into the kingdom of God is dependent upon our repentance. So if we consider ourselves above self-effacing groveling before God for mercy, then we won't repent. We just won't do it. We'll be proud and unrepentant. We stubbornly refuse to take our sins seriously. And we stubbornly refuse to change. Another hindrance uh, to true repentance is that we have a shallow view of sin. We recognize we're sinners, but we're like, hey, it's not that bad. It's just a sin. What's the big deal? It's a white little lie. Who cares? Right? I mean, a white little lie, I mean, that's, that's just, that's horrible. It's horrible. I mean, because when you say things like that, or when you think that way about your sin, you're failing to recognize who it is you're sinning against. You're failing to recognize how weighty that is. That this isn't just an arbitrary breaking of rules. Like, oh, you know, I went over the speed limit there. Darn. You know, this is something more significant than that. We can't just assume that Jesus died for that, so I'm okay. Right? Uh, Jesus died for my sin, so now that I can do what I want. But Jesus died to save you from your sin. Not to save you so that you can remain in your sin. That from doesn't mean the consequences and the guilt. It means from your sin, from your rebellion, that you stop rebelling. So sin is a big deal because God is a big deal. Right? This is, this is where it's at. Uh, when we sin, we deny the very nature and character of God. We deny that He's worthy. Like the lying thing, the little white lie is a big deal because God is the God of truth. God has revealed His truth. God delights in the truth. God is trustworthy. He gives His Spirit of truth. Truth is a big deal because it reflects the very nature and character of God. And when we lie, we're going against that. We're denying that. We're saying something false about God. It's the same way with our pride. God is a humble God. He's not a proud God. Or our lust. God is pure. God is holy. He's perfectly good. He's perfectly righteous. Even in our lust after things, we're desiring something that's against His very nature. It's a huge deal. You guys like cars at all? Try to illustrate this with another. You like cars? I mean, think of the most expensive car you can think of. You know, like Lamborghinis, Ferraris kind of stuff. Like, think of a half million dollar car, you know? Say you own this car. And then somebody comes up, takes his key, just scratches the side of it. What's your response? You're like, are you just like, oh, that's okay. No, no big deal. You know, it's only going to cost me $100,000 to repaint the car. No big deal. I'm, I'm okay. 
No, you're mad, right? You're, you're, you're angry and indignant over this fact. I mean, because that, that car is worth a lot. And here's some guy just, in his rebellion, his rejection, his hatred just goes and he scratches it, right? Or maybe if that doesn't work for you, and maybe you're sentimental, think about, think about, uh, your family, like, the, the, your family home, if, if that's a big deal. That was a big deal for my, like, my mom and stuff. But like, family home is like, you know, you could give, you can give my mom, like, a, you know, a billion dollar mansion and she won't trade for, you know, the family farmhouse. It's, that's that big a deal. And imagine this family home filled with every priceless heirloom that you can think of. Every, every human treasure, everything that you've ever desired and hoped for and every, every sentimental thing that you can, could think of. And then somebody going and setting fire to it. Because that's what sin is like. But the thing is, where that car will rust, will fall apart, where that house will eventually cave in, God's forever. God is worth infinitely more than that. And so our sin against God is worthy of an infinite offense. It's worthy of eternal condemnation. One sin, one white lie, one rejection of God's will in eating the forbidden fruit is worthy of sin and death. Like, it's worthy of condemnation. I mean, it's like, this is huge. We've got to catch this. And when we catch how great God is, then we can finally start to see our sin in light of what it is. This is a big deal. But the problem is we have far too low a view of God, we have far too low a view of sin, and far too high a view of ourselves. Amen. And when we do that, we won't repent. And if this weren't enough, probably the greatest hindrance to true repentance is that we have a shallow view of repentance, right? We misunderstanding. We think of it as like confession, you know? And we, we kind of get in this big cycle of like, sorry, God, oh, my sin. I'm sorry, God. Oh, my sin. Oh, sorry, God. Oh, my sin. And then we, we're like a dog chasing its tail until it falls over, right? You know? I mean, that's exactly how it is. It's just this vicious circle. And we think that we're okay because we're saying sorry, but it won't work. Eventually, it'll stop. It'll stop. Either we'll drop over dead, you know, in our rebellion, or we'll stop saying we're sorry because we know that it's fruitless, you know, to chase our tails in that way, or we'll recognize that repentance is more than that. That it's not just about doing the same things, it's, it's about having a different attitude, making different judgments, and de- developing a plan of change. So I stop chasing my stupid tail, right? And so we've got to catch that. Repentance requires a change of action, a change of heart, not just a... A confessionalism. So you think about that in your own lives, you know. I mean, we can get in accountability groups and every week we come there and we're like, hey man, I did it again. Hey man, I did it again. Hey man, I did it again. Guys, just punch them. Guys, it's okay. You can punch them. Girls, you have to think of something different. But guys, you can punch them. It's okay. You know, stop it kind of works a little bit better for guys. I don't know why, but it does. Um, but, but the reality is, We've got to develop a plan of change if we're going to move away from that. And we've got to be strategic about it. And that's what repentance is really all about. I mean, you think about guilt and consequences of sin. I mean, there were two men that denied Jesus, right? Judas Iscariot and Peter. Both of them felt guilty over their sin. Only one was truly repentant. One went out and hung himself in his guilt. The other one fell on his face in the sand and pleaded God to, to Christ and recommitted his life. And so which one are you going to be in that? Right? 
And like Peter, we quickly find out that repentance is not just a one-time deal. It's a matter of, of life. We're constantly repenting of our sins. You know, I, I read in a Desiring God blog that, that the heart's like a jungle, and the gospel's the light. If you think about repentance as a machete, as you whack out this jungle, you know, the light, the gospel light penetrates that, but you've got to keep whacking. You know, and the more and more you do that, the more and more you repent, that the more that gospel light continues to shine down on your life and you become more and more like Christ. So we've got to keep doing it. <clears throat> As Martin Luther said in his 95 Theses, when the Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, and he's speaking of this passage right here, he called the entire life of believers to one of repentance. Our entire life, we're going to be doing this. You know, I, I once had this foolish assumption that as I grew in Christ and I became more holy, that I would have to repent less. And that's just not true. The reality is I repent more. I repent more and more and more and more because I'm more aware of my sin. But the other side of the coin of repentance is faith. Jesus not only preaches the kingdom of God, he not only preaches repentance of sin, but he calls us to believe in the gospel. And this is more than just an intellectual ascent, right? Because the near, nearness of God's kingdom, we must believe in the gospel. We must trust. We must have faith. We must believe that God's promised king, his promised Lord, his anointed Savior has arrived. God's Redeemer is here. He has come. He has died on the cross for our sins. He's been raised to new life again, which shows us that God's, God's penalty for sin has been satisfied. It shows us that he indeed is the kingdom king of God, and that all will be raised, all the righteous and the wicked will stand before him in judgment. And that those who believe, who repent and believe, will have eternal life. And those who continue in the rebellion will have eternal condemnation. And this is a big deal. Faith means to trust Christ and his words, even in times of difficulty, even when it's hard, even when the consequences are rough. And we see that for John the Baptist, don't we? That he was handed over in his faith. It means to believe with a childlike trust and a personal commitment. Faith is resting in the fact that God accepts you in Christ. That you don't have to continue to pay for your sins. That it has been forgiven and you are accepted. Jesus is calling us here to believe in Him. To trust in Him. To follow after Him. And this is more than just a recognition like that of the demons in James 2. Or the demons we'll even see here in Mark who professed him to be the Son of God, but continued in their rebellion. You know, I can believe, I can still choose to believe that Pluto is a planet, even though that's subject to much debate these days. But I can't see Pluto, and Pluto has no bearing on my life, okay? That's not faith. Faith is radically life-reorienting. It changes the way we think, it changes the way we speak, it changes the way we act, it changes the way we live. Now, if you've ever gone through Christianity Explained, this illustration is going to be familiar to you. I think I've even preached on it once here before. But have you ever heard of the Great Blondin? Anybody? Great Blondin was a tightrope walker during the 19th century. And his big claim to fame was that he took a tightrope and he stretched it across Niagara Falls. Right? And, of course, this was huge at the time. I mean, people were coming from everywhere to see this guy. 1,100 feet in the air walking across this tightrope above this rushing water. 
I mean, this is, this is a big deal. But, of course, after a while, that got old. You know, the crowd stopped coming. So what do you got to do? I've got to up the ante a little bit. And so Blondin starts doing things like riding a unicycle across it. He goes out there, and he, he cooks an egg, and he eats it while he's sitting down on the tightrope. And he goes out there with this wheelbarrow back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And his fame had resulted in this, this one reporter in particular just falling madly, like, in love, sort of, with, with Blondin. Not in a relational sense, but, I mean, he just, he worshipped the ground this guy walked on, you know? He thought he was the greatest stunt artist of all times. And so this reporter, he's doing an interview with Blondin. And Blondin is telling him about a new trick that he's got going on. He's like, you know, I've decided what I'm going to do is instead of just going across with this wheelbarrow, I'm going to put a man in the wheelbarrow, and I'm going to go back and forth across it. He's like, do you believe that I can do it? And the guy's like, yeah. You're the greatest stunt artist of all times. Of course you can do it. I totally believe you can do it. He's like, really? You really believe that I can take a man, I can put him in this wheelbarrow, and I can go back and forth across Niagara Falls? He's like, absolutely. Without a doubt, I 100% believe that you can do it. He's like, good. Get in the wheelbarrow. <laughs> well, the man, the man never did. He never got in the wheelbarrow. He, in abstract, in principle, believed that Blondie could do it. But he wasn't willing to stick his life on it. He wasn't willing to follow. You know, there was a man who later on would cling to Blondin's back as he scaled across it. I mean, literally hung on his back as Blondin walked that 1,100-foot tightrope. It was Blondin's manager, man who really believed in him, clinging to his back as he walked across the tightrope. And that's faith. What an image of faith that he's clinging to the one who would save him or would kill him. <laughs> you know? But that's what, that's what faith is for us. It's that clinging to Christ as your Savior and everything being changed by it. You're willing to stake your life on it because you realize that Jesus is worth it, that he deserves your life. He deserves your complete devotion as your Redeemer and resurrected Lord. For John the Baptist, it meant that he was handed over and that he was eventually beheaded. For the other apostles, it meant death. And Paul calls all of us to count all things lost for the sake of Christ. And that's not just metaphorical. That's real. But though Jesus calls us to a radical commitment, he also promises a radical gain. In Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 30, he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake or for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, in this time, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus promises that if you act with that kind of repentance and faith, hardships are still going to come. Life is still going to be difficult. You may even be handed over to death. But what you gain is far greater in this life and in the one to come. Now we can read this and we can be thinking to ourselves, you know what? Jesus said this like 2,000 years ago. And we're not there yet. I mean, if the kingdom is near, it's not here yet. And that might 
cause us to kind of think, well, I've got time. Yeah, I see the kingdom of God is here. You know that Jesus is king. I recognize that. I know that my need, you know, I, I need to respond by repentance and faith, but I'm going to say not yet. I'm going to say I'll wait. I'm just going to wait. But we have to remember that Jesus is preaching. That Mark is proclaiming to us that the time is fulfilled. The time is now. It's not to wait until that last moment. It's like you're going to have some sort of deathbed experience that's going to be okay. He's calling you. You're now culpable. You've heard the message. The king is here. And you need to repent and believe. So you don't have time. Your response needs to be now. If you're going to repent and put Christ first in your life, you don't do that tomorrow or the next week or the next month or 20 years down the road. You do it now. That's what it means. You cling to Christ now. And so I don't know where you guys are today. You know, a lot of you, it's the first time I've ever seen you. I'm glad you guys are here. But God's calling you to repent and believe in the gospel today. We're not guaranteed anything. We're not guaranteed anything at all. But either way, Jesus is king, and he deserves right and true worship. And so... If you're, if this is speaking to you, you're like realize, you know what? I need to, I need to do something about this. I, just come and talk to me, or talk to Caleb, or talk to somebody. But don't leave without responding. Don't put it off until tomorrow. Jesus is calling us now. He says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we recognize and affirm that. Your kingdom is here because Christ is here. That He is King. God, I pray that uh, that that recognition wouldn't just be theoretical, wouldn't just be in principle, we wouldn't just affirm the words that we hear on a page, but that it would be life transforming. That we would recognize and by implication respond as Jesus calls us to respond, to repent and believe in the gospel. So whether we're this is the first time we've heard the gospel, whether we've yet to accept it or whether we have. I mean, we're still called back to repent and believe and repent and believe. And God, we pray that we would do that. I pray that, that we wouldn't just let this message gloss over it and that we wouldn't just walk out of here and kind of continue in with life as we know it, but that we would be changed by it. This is your word. This is the message from your son, Jesus Christ. So God, we ask you to work in our lives, work through us, draw us together as we proclaim this truth. And may Christ be exalted in our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.